Support for WMNF comes from listeners like you and the Times Festival of Reading on Saturday, November 11th. The festival brings authors writing about today's compelling topics and most read fiction for discussions about their books. This year, the Times Festival of Reading will be at the Palladium in St. Petersburg. More information at festivalofreading.com. That's one word, festivalofreading.com. Welcome to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we are broadcasting live on October 31st from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Today on the show, we're going to get the latest information about a possible leak at a Polk County phosphogypsum stack that's owned by the giant company Mosaic. It's at the New Wales, New Wales plant, that is, near Mulberry, where there was a massive sinkhole draining millions of gallons of wastewater into the aquifer in 2016. We're going to get to that in just a few minutes when our guest from the Center for Biological Diversity joins us. First, I want to tell you about a couple of other things. Uh, During that newscast, the NPR News headlines, we heard from NPR's reporter Aya Batraoui. And longtime listeners to WMNF will recognize that name. She used to volunteer in our newsroom. And she is going to be one of our guests next week on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. So I hope that you tune in next week at 10 o'clock to hear from Aya about what she has been seeing in Israel and in the Gaza Strip and in the Middle East. We'll talk to her about that. So I can't wait to talk to Aya again and I hope that you enjoy that conversation as well. Also, I want to tell you right now, uh, we just got a press release from the Tampa Police Department about that Ybor City shooting on Sunday morning. Tampa police have launched a web-based portal for people to submit tips in that fatal 7th Avenue shooting. Here's some more from that from that press release. The Tampa Police Department has partnered with the Federal Bureau of Investigation to launch a new web-based portal to submit tips to related to the fatal Sunday morning shooting on 7th Avenue. This portal allows members of the public to submit texts, photos, or videos that will be routed directly to investigators. Here's the site if you have something that you'd like to submit to them. FBI.gov slash Tampa shooting, all one word, word, Tampa shooting. And uh, just some background on that, some of the things that we know about that. Tyrell Stephen Phillips, who was born in 2009, was taken into custody on Sunday. And the Tampa police say that based on the current evidence collected, detectives believe there are two additional suspects who appear to have fired several gunshots. So if you would like to send information to the FBI and to Tampa police, again, that website is fbi.gov slash Tampa shooting. And if uh, during the show, if you want to talk about guns or the shooting or anything like that, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So uh, we're going to, as I mentioned, we're going to talk in just a few minutes about that Polk County phosphogypsum stack that may have a possible leak again. It's, there have been two since 2016, including in one, in, one major one in 2016 and another smaller one perhaps last year. And we're going to talk about that with the Center for Biological Diversity in just a few minutes. Until then, I want to know what you think about this audio clip that I'm about to play. Governor Ron DeSantis has fallen into a tie for second place with Nikki Haley in some polls in his quest for the Republican nomination for president. 
they're both way, 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 way behind former President Donald Trump. And that's meant that the Florida governor has spent a lot of time outside the state. So even though there's almost, this is what I'm about to play is almost two weeks old. I wanna bring you this short speech from when the governor was in Manatee County recently. And I wanna see what you think. So again, the number to call in is 813-239-9663. You can email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. If you text, I don't have any way to know who it is that's sending in information. So, um, so uh, please uh, tell us your name and where you're calling, where you're texting from. So here's what the governor said at the unveiling of, in, in Manatee County of what is now called Governor Ron DeSantis Park. You can tell us what you think about that name as well. So here's the governor. You're listening to WMNS. Thank you. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. What an honor. What a great park. Uh, my wife and I uh, are thankful for the folks here in Manatee County. We appreciate uh, all that you're doing. You know, there's uh, a lot going on in the state of Florida. And if you look at uh, Sarasota, Bradenton area, uh, been been one of the hot spots. People are talking about it all across the United States, believe it or not. Everywhere I go, someone will come up to me, talk about Florida. And, and this area has really, really uh, caught the eye because it's a great place to live. It's a great place to raise a family. It's a great place to retire to. You guys are really doing it right. So uh, as governor, I appreciate uh, what our local governments are doing well. And I and I also note when they're not doing as well. And I will say that uh, uh, in this part of the state, uh, we've had some great partners to move the state forward. And people can look at the, at the results. Uh, Florida, uh, largely because of uh, good policies, strong leadership, keeping the state free during COVID, uh, we have the number one ranked economy of all 50 states by CNBC. We have the number one uh, ranked education system uh, by U.S. News and World Report. We're number one fastest growing state, number one for net in-migration, second lowest per capita tax burden, second lowest per capita debt burden in the state. And since I've been governor, we've paid down almost 25% of our state's total outstanding debt from the inception of the state of Florida till the, till the present. Uh, we're a law and order state. Our crime rate's at a 50-year low. Um, you know, some of the uh, uh, corporate press tried to hit me on saying that because that's what our, our state law enforcement agency does, and they calculate this like the FBI does, so they tried to hit me. So they went back and they said, well, we actually have even more data and we'll calculate it. And actually, not only um, is it 50-year low, it's actually lower than what we thought it was before. So that's what you want to see. And so we're proud to be the free state of Florida. We're proud that when uh, some of these states do insane things, when cities do stupid things all across this country, uh, when people have had enough, the first place they now think about coming is the state of Florida. And we've seen people from all across the United States come here. Look, I want to have every state be free, though. You know, it's like we can't have everybody that wants to, uh, that has probably, like, we need to stop having these problems in these other parts of the country. So, so that's what we're going to do. So, so it really is an honor. And I'm proud that, you know, just more recently, you know, you see this terrible terrorist attack in Israel with Hamas. And they're massacring Israelis. There were more Jews killed on October 7th than at any time since the Holocaust. 
And, you know, you already have the media trying to blame Israel and all, and I predicted that that would happen. But there was a lot of uh, angst. There was a lot of uh, problems going on with just people that were there. And we had a lot of Floridians over there. They weren't getting any help from the State Department. They weren't getting any help from the embassy. The best that they would end up doing is dumping them in, in Greece and then charging them for that. You know, people come across our border illegally, and the federal government will fly them all across the country at taxpayer expense. They don't charge the illegal alien. They will put them up in hotels and foot the bill. They don't send the bill to the illegal alien. Yet our own citizens who are fleeing a war zone, they're sending a bill uh, to to dump them in Greece. That's not right. So we did an executive order last week. We marshaled our emergency management resources, uh, and we sent planes to bring Floridians back from the state of Israel. And we've already had two planes land. We have more on the way. We had people donating supplies. So when the planes went back, they brought a whole bunch of supplies uh, to Israel. They're working in concert with the Israeli government on that. And we're happy to do that when there's a void of leadership, as on so many of these issues, Florida steps up and answers the call. We did it with COVID. Uh, we did it with standing for parents' rights. They mentioned girls' sports, school choice. All these, they're standing up for law enforcement and now helping Americans who were caught in a very difficult situation. Uh, we are proud, though, to stand with the state of Israel here in Florida. Uh, they have every right to defend themselves, and that means they have every right to eliminate Hamas uh, as an entity, and I think anything short of that is going to lead to more terror attacks. Uh, so don't let the media try to say it's Israel's fault. No, Israel did not massacre those people. Uh, it's Hamas's fault, um, and they would do that to uh, untold number of people if they were allowed to do it. So we just can't uh, we can't allow that. So we'll be standing by. Uh, we're going to be calling out uh, the federal government when they're doing dumb things. They want to send a hundred million dollars to the Gaza Strip. Hamas is going to commandeer that money, guys. They are going to plow it into terrorism. You should not be sending U.S. taxpayer dollars uh, to Hamas and to the Gaza Strip. They still have people hostage, held hostage, including Americans as well as many Israelis. So it's totally unacceptable uh, that they're doing that. So, you know, one of the things I think Florida, reason why we've done well is because we use common sense here in Florida. You know, we really have a, a dose of sanity that governs what we do. That is not happening in so many other parts of the country. So we're going to continue uh, fulfilling the mission on bringing people back from Israel. I think we're going to have another uh, another plane load or two, and we will have able we will have rescued uh, probably between seven hundred and a thousand uh, people, uh, Americans, mostly Floridians, from the state of Israel, and bring them back here. So that's good. <laughs> We will at some point, my wife and I will at some point uh, turn uh, our kids loose at this park and our travels. Uh, I can tell you age six, five, and three, uh, they like playgrounds. They like a lot of stuff here. And it's been, um, it's been interesting to, uh, look, it's great being a dad. It's, and, and we, my wife and I are really um, invested in all of that. But when you are our governor, it's busy. And then when you've got this other national campaign, we're juggling a lot. And so we're uh, but we're making it all work. And uh, and I'll tell you, we do whatever we can uh, to spend as much time with our kids as, as humanly possible. We've had some some great stories over the last uh, few months that we've been able to do with them and many more to come. So uh, so just as a dad. 
uh, I'm glad that uh, you know this honor is here for something that so many families are going to be in, be able to enjoy now and in the future. So uh, I'm honored to be here. I thank you for thinking of me. Uh, we're proud of what we've been able to do uh, to help uh, make Florida the best state in the country, and I promise you the best is yet to come. Thank you. Well, that was Governor Ron DeSantis speaking this month at the opening of what's called Governor Ron DeSantis Park in Manatee County. And later on in the show, we're going to open up the phone lines if you'd like to comment on that or about our our next topic, which I think is going to be something that people will really want to talk about. We're going to be joined by our guest in just a second, and we're going to find out the latest about a possible leak at a Polk County phosphogypsum stack that's owned by Mosaic. And I should say I invited Mosaic on the show today, but they said they were unable to make it. Uh, We found out a few days ago about a possible leak of water at that Polk County phosphogypsum stack. And it's owned by Mosaic and it's at their new Wales plant near Mulberry. That's where there was a massive sinkhole that drained millions of gallons of processed wastewater into the aquifer in 2016. And joining me right now by Zoom is Reagan Whitlock, staff attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. here in just a minute, but let's back it up a little bit and say, what do we know about phosphate in Florida? What is phosphate and where is it mined in Florida? Sure. It's a great question for for background here. So the radioactive waste that we'll be discussing uh, in conjunction with the New Wales facility comes from phosphate mining in order to make phosphate-based fertilizers. Now, phosphate mining itself is an incredibly destructive activity, which starts with the removal of approximately 30 feet of overburden, or as folks not associated with the industry would refer to it as habitat, soil, vegetation, life. You know, there are significant impacts to water quality and biodiversity from this process. But what I want to talk about today is not related to the mining itself, but rather the radioactive toxic waste created during the fertilizer production process, with the, which the industry either cannot or will not safely dispose of. And so uh, th- this good, would be a good time for us to talk about how all that waste is disposed of. So um, you've talked a little bit about the m- process of mining phosphate from digging it up, but how, do we, how is it processed and how do we dispose of those? How is it, are those waste products disposed of? Sure. So phosphogypsum and processed wastewater are the two radioactive toxic wastes created during the process of making phosphate-based fertilizers. And phosphate mining is a very waste-intensive process. Nearly five tons of phosphogypsum are created for every one ton of usable phosphoric acid produced. And the EPA currently requires that this waste be stored in mountainous heaps called gyp stacks, which many folks listening may have seen in their horizon when looking out at Tampa Bay. It's the the closest thing to mountains that we have in the state of Florida. Now, although these are unquestionably hazardous wastes, they're not treated that way under the law. We have a a cradle-to-grave statutory scheme for hazardous waste known as the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. And that exempts these two wastes due to the costs of compliance to the industry for properly disposing of them. And and I want to state at the outset, the Mosaic Company, the owners of New Wales, reported a net income of $3.6 billion in 2022 alone. They could stand to take a financial haircut in order to be better stewards of our environment. So now let's go back about seven years to 2016. We learned about this giant sinkhole that formed 
um, at the top of this active phosphogypsum stack at New Wales. And the, the sinkhole went down for hundreds of feet, I think. And tell us what we know about the, the, um, the sinkhole, what caused it perhaps, where the water went, and what, what happened afterwards. Sure. So we live in a naturally porous geographic region. And, and placing mountainous heaps of radioactive waste in ponds above this fragile geology is a recipe for disaster. The new whale site that we're discussing is a chronic polluter and a problem child within the phosphate industry. You know, it's seen several major sinkholes, including the one in 2016 that you mentioned. There was also one in 1994 that released 80 million gallons of processed wastewater. You know, this facility saw a liner tear similar to what we're experiencing now in March of 2021, which was actually made worse when the company attempted to investigate the tear due to a construction mishap. Now, what's happening right now is considered a potential leak by Mosaic until they can investigate further. But the Florida Department of Environmental Protection has already referred to this as a liner tear in its inspection report. You know, you can think of these gyp stacks as a, an above-ground pool. Essentially, at the top of these mountains, there is a hard plastic liner containing a slurry of liquid. Now, when the, the liquid, when the water level in these ponds drops, just like you would imagine in a pool, that water has to go somewhere. So when we see a water level drop, we can assume that there was either a sinkhole or a liner tear because the water is, of course, going somewhere. And our aquifer is placed precariously below. So we can imagine in a sinkhole, it would drop down into the aquifer. But where would it go if, it, if there was a tear, but no, no uh, deep sinkhole? There's no deep sinkhole, but a tear could potentially contaminate our groundwater resources. Now, remember, Piney Point, which is likely a, a facility that many folks listening uh, can remember, started as a potential liner tear. Now, note, Mosaic did not own that facility, and that facility was placed very close to Tampa Bay. But it started the exact same way. It started with a potential liner tear that became a confirmed liner tear, and then another, and then another, until it was... You know, had the potential to completely blow and send a tidal wave of this waste into a nearby town. So ultimately, the Florida Department of Environmental Protection released a lot of this processed wastewater and phosphogypsum into Tampa Bay. And that fueled a deadly red tide that killed 600 tons or tens of thousands of individuals of marine life in Tampa Bay alone, including several manatees, sea turtles and dolphins, species that folks really care about across the region. And nothing changed from a regulatory standpoint after the catastrophe at Piney Point. Now, I'm not saying what's happening at New Wales right now may be the next Piney Point, but the public has to understand that these things are possible. We have already seen environmental catastrophes from the phosphate industry in and around Tampa Bay, and we need to have better oversight of these facilities to ensure it doesn't happen again. Our guest is Reagan Whitlock, a staff attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. And we're talking about a possible leak of water at a Polk County phosphogypsum stack that's owned by the giant fertilizer company Mosaic. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. And I'd like to hear from our listeners about what you think about this. You can give us a call at 813-239-9663. You can text 813-433-0885 or email us dj at wmnf.org if you're listening to us live here on October 31st. So, Reagan, um, before we go too much further, get to the present, let's just backtrack to 2016 one more time because I want to I say what Mosaic had to say about 
that 2016 disaster. Um, we have a, we did invite Mosaic on the show, but they were not able to join us. So here's part of what their website says about that 2016 incident. They say that Mosaic subsequently committed to heightened transparency for notable events having the potential to affect the community, and that commitment remains today. The water loss resulted from a sinkhole that formed beneath the gyp stacks, which damaged the stack's base liner, and there were no off-site impacts from that incident. So two things I'd like you to address, Reagan, if you don't mind. Um, you can address the no off-site impacts from the incident in 2016, and also what are they talking about when they say that they've committed to heightened transparency for notable events? There was There's a lot of um, reporting that has to be done uh, in the public now, right? Certainly, but I, I would push back on the notion that they've increased transparency at all. When we had a liner tear last year, it was considered a possible liner tear for months, and the public did not know that it was confirmed until a backdated letter from FDEP to Mosaic was published online in the public information portal. To my knowledge, the Mosaic company and the industry at large has not embraced public transparency, and that's one of our largest problems. And to the point of the where Mosaic is saying that the water re, water loss from the sinkhole damaged the stack's baseliner, but there were no offsite impacts from that incident. Have we heard from people who have uh, said that their water was contaminated near that site? Uh, I'm not familiar with folks around the area who have reported any contamination, but this this speaks to the, the transparency issue at large here. Piney Point was such a, an obvious issue because we saw the water dump into Tampa Bay. Now, this sinkhole in 2016 garnered international news coverage because helicopters above could literally see a waterfall of radioactive waste headed to the Florida aquifer. Now, Mosaic does claim that they have successfully or are still successfully pumping this phosphogypsum out of the Florida aquifer. But conservationists are certainly not going to be allowed on site to do testing. And I have not seen adequate testing posted that can corroborate the statement that there have been no offsite impacts. Well, I want to remind people that our guest is Reagan Whitlock, a staff attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. And uh, I want to take calls from listeners during this show. If you're listening live on October 31st, you can call 813-239-9663. Of course, you can always email us dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. And we have a caller now, for, uh, Dave in North Tampa. Hi, Dave. What would you like to ask? Well, um, on the first topic, um, on Sunday morning, I heard DeSantis um, talk, rave about um, our crime rate here in Florida. And the, um, the interviewer said, but the CDC says that gun deaths are up in Florida. And he said, oh, well, if, if you include COVID, and, and nobody's pointing that out, like how ridiculous his answer was, because gun deaths are up ever since um, permitless carry. But um, as far as um, Mosaic goes, um, yet again, there's going to be the fifth toxic bus tour from Walter Smith. Um, and I think it's coming up on November 11th. Anybody can check that out on the Facebook page, just um, toxic bus tour, and it'll come up. Um, and we go over and we, we see um, the Mosaic stacks that are sitting, hovering over Apollo Beach. Um, particularly our red line community of Progress Village. In what world was that ever permissible, you know, 50 years ago? And yet it, and it still continues. And at the, same, at the same token, there's right across the street is the Tico Colash pile, which used to be 10. Now they say it's one. 
And there is a report that says that there's an overflow pipe from the gypsum stacks into the coal ash piles, and the coal ash piles empty into our estuaries. And yet, Kiko is bragging about the manatees being there. I could go on and on, but thank you so much for bringing awareness to this topic. We need to ask for some um, sanity regarding um, our ecology here in Florida. It's 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 overwhelming. Thanks. Well, Dave, thanks for calling in and uh, for mentioning the bus tour. Yeah, if, if people want to look up the toxic bus tour in Tampa and, and Hillsborough County, uh, that's something that you can do. And we've reported on that. You can find our reports on WMNF.org as well. So thanks for calling in there, Dave. And I want to ask our, our guest, Reagan Whitlock from the Center for Biological Diversity, um, what his thoughts are about, especially when it comes to redlining and building these um, these toxic waste places in in areas that are um, served by uh, minority communities or or people with as, with fewer means certainly I, I've spoken to date about the environmental impacts from these fossil gypsum stacks but we can't forget that there are also incredible environmental justice impacts you know these gyp stacks are consistently placed near low-income and minority communities because the assumption is that these communities do not have the political voice to be able to fight back. And this is a significant problem. You know, we saw with Piney Point that there was the potential for this liner to tear and to send a tidal wave of radioactive waste into a nearby town. And it is unacceptable that these gyp stacks continue to be placed next to minority communities. All right. Thank you so much for that call, Dave. And I have a whole bunch of emails that I'll try to get to as we as I can as we go. So um, John writes, do you know what Mosaic's plans are for the purchase of the East Bay Raceway property, which was supposed to be completed in 2024? Reagan, is that something you know about? No, it isn't. But that, that brings up a good point when it comes to plans for the industry. Mosaic has made clear that it seeks to expand the New Wales facility. There have been expansion requests in 2021 and 2023, and this has been made clear to be the site that will receive the gypsum from Mosaic's expanded operations in southwest Florida. This is a site that shows significant structural integrity problems, yet it has been deemed as the site that will continue for years to expand and expand and collect more of this hazardous toxic waste. Yeah, our guest is Reagan Whitlock, a staff attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. And um, we've been talking about the history of the New Wales plants and the big spill that happened there in 2016 and the spill that, or the possible liner tear, or as the EPA, as the Department of Environmental Protection is saying, the liner tear that's happening right there now. And I should tell people again that we did invite Mosaic on the show today to find out more about this possible liner tear, as they say, but they were unable to make the show. But here's the information that's on their website about the latest possible tear. They say on October 24th, 2023, we provided an update about the new Wales gyp stack. In recent years, we deployed a new monitoring technology which measures seismic activity. The technology is quite sensitive and the monitoring points encircle the stack at various distances and depths. It it has proven effective in alerting us to the possibility of an issue which could be occurring far below the stack and liner. We're also employing other monitors to observe changes in water levels in and around the stack. That said, we are working to confirm the conditions of the subsurface below this area of the stack. And I'm, I'm continuing to read here from Mosaic's website. We stopped using this area for stacking around a year ago and since that time have removed the processed water stored on the stack. The stack is within the zone of capture for a nearby recovery well. So in the event there is a liner tear, 
Water released will be recovered. We immediately notified the state of circumstances we encountered. And following that, we have done outreach to the local community and other stakeholders. So that is Mosaic talking about the latest liner tear or possible liner tear. Um, Break all that down for us. What does that tell us about what we might know about what's happening there? Sure. The first thing that I would like to address is the implementation of new technologies. Yeah, that's something that they have listed on their website. And I want to be very clear that a, a few years ago, the Florida Department of Environmental Protection ordered this facility to halt all construction operations because of seismic activity that was recorded and then ordered additional seismic monitoring to happen at the site. Whether what they're currently referring to or not has been ordered by the regulators is unclear. I invite additional technology at this site and certainly have no problem with that, but it downplays the issue that's happening here. This is a liner tear. This is a loss of toxic process wastewater. There's really no other way around that. It sounded like they said that they had removed the process water that was stored on that stack. So how how are both things possible? How is it that they had removed the processed water, but then they also noticed that there was uh, a, a Was there a decrease in the water there? I'm I'm a little bit confused about that part. Yeah, what's been reported to the Florida Department of Environmental Protection is a process wastewater loss. So even though they have at this specific area removed the process wastewater from the holding pond, that holding pond still sits atop concrete-like gypsum that's hardened over time. And interstitially between the layers of this fossil gypsum, there still exists processed wastewater. So likely that is what's been lost. However, it's it, it speaks back to the transparency problem. You know, normally when we see liner tears, you see a drop in elevation from a stack system like we saw last year. However, now we simply don't have the information and I'm worried that we will not receive it from Mosaic or from the Florida Department of Environmental Protection anytime soon. All we have is a pollution notice submitted along with a critical condition notification that says we have lost an indeterminate amount of this process wastewater. Our guest is Reagan Whitlock, a staff attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. We're talking about a possible leak of water at a Polk County phosphogypsum stack that's owned by the giant fertilizer company Mosaic. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF Tampa live here on October 31st. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about this as well. You can email us at dj at wmnf.org, text 813-433-0885, or you can give us a call at 813-239-9663. I'm taking calls today, and I want to read uh, this text message or part of it from someone who does not sign their name here, but they say that they're a lifelong Mulberry resident. And I think they were referring in this part to the 2016 disaster. They say that was the single scariest thing, or it should be for all Floridians, not to mention our local residents. And this person also is um, pointing out to the to that there is this new information about this possible new liner tear or loss of water. So thank you, lifelong Mulberry resident for that text. I appreciate that. And... Um, uh, so maybe this is the good time to ask for people or ask you, Reagan, for your opinion about fertilizer. Um, you know, you could certainly make an argument that f- people need food and they need f- uh, to fertilizer is used, phosphate is used as fertilizer for food. What would we do though if we didn't have as much phosphate being produced in Florida? What are the alternatives? 
Certainly, and I completely understand the question. I think I'd like to to reframe this to a, a waste issue, right? What we're calling for is for the phosphate industry to be held accountable for the more than 30 million tons of toxic waste it creates in Florida every single year. You know, we have more than 1 billion tons currently stored in stack systems across the state of Florida. And the industry is trying now to put it into our roadways. You know, this is not a, a phosphate discussion at large. This is based on the, the waste. And this is a company that made $3.6 billion last year, yet is exempt from many of our regulations. What we need is accountability and additional oversight. That is an incredible first step that would greatly reduce the environmental ramifications. Wendy writes in and says that she worked on the water when there was the last red tide and she said it was horrendous. And I think that anyone who was near the water uh, during that very serious red tide is uh, understands what you say, Wendy. And so she is asking, what can I do to support this or, or to, to uh, help in this problem? Sure. And, and she brings up a, a, a wonderful point as well as the previous text messenger about how you know, the mulberry issue and that the 2016 sinkhole should have been a massive wake-up call. Piney Point should have been a massive wake-up call as well. Those are the two of the worst-case scenarios that we have with these gypstack systems. One fueled a deadly red tide. The other one potentially polluted our aquifer. You know, no regulatory changes happened in the wake of these two events. And I I really want to hammer that point home. If neither of these were a wake-up call, what, what possibly are we waiting for? You know, it is time to demand change. And to the question of what can they do, this is a perfect time and a perfect example of a situation where you should tell your local representatives. You know, we have counties passing ordinances and resolutions that ban phosphate mining or ban storage of phosphate mining waste in their areas. We have, you know, folks in the, the federal level championing for better oversight. You can speak to your legislator. You can speak to your policymaker and try to demand change because that's what we need. All right, we're going to try to go to the phones right now because we have a couple of people on the line. Let's see if uh, we're having a little bit of difficulty. Oh, there we go. So we have uh, Chris Chris in Clearwater. Go ahead. Uh, Sean, you just asked what are the options to phosphate mining, uh, the phosphate fertilizer. And uh, I would uh, point out ionized water, mineral ions, uh, because uh, they're the best absorbed and you get a full array of them. If you, what I do is I put a little bit of Himalayan salt with a wide array of over 90 minerals in the source water before I pump it through my water ionizer and just put it in a spray bottle, spray it on the plants. And I notice they do so much better. Uh, They bolt and bloom so much more. The bumper crops, uh, much fewer bug bites, and uh, sometimes annuals and biennials become perennials. Whereas in contrast with uh, phosphate mining, the three minerals, the the, uh, potassium, nitrogen, and phosphorus, those are the three numbers on the fertilizer bags, that most crops will do well or will not do well, but they'll grow and uh, have uh, lower immunity, so farmers feel as if they're dependent on pesticides and uh, fungicides, and that's uh, what's called forced growth, uh, because uh, you're just giving them the basic uh, three minerals, and uh, you know the plants are not uh, producing as many vitamins and uh, not absorb. Of course, if they've not provided the minerals in the soil, they're not going to absorb them. Uh, you can put ionized water in the soil as well, but um, I'd encourage uh, checking out uh, videos, um, uh, just doing a search online of uh, ionized water 
agriculture, and you'll find a video by Beverly Rubick, PhD, among others. Well, thanks for that information, Chris. I appreciate that. And I want to try to get one. We're going to move to some some uh, different topics besides just phosphate in just a second. So before we uh, move on, I want to squeeze in as many phone calls as we can. So let's hear from Lenny in Gulfport. Hi, Lenny. What would you like to say? All right. Well, thank you very much for having this program on. It's very critical. Uh, there's a group that's called Florida Right to Clean Water. And what we're trying to do is get a constitutional amendment on the 2024 ballot that would declare that clean and healthy water is a fundamental right in Florida. And that fundamental right would take precedence over any other uh, interest. I think there was recently a court case in which a judge ruled that uh, even though 19,000 people were against a particular, uh, I think it was a Jenny Springs. They were against the, the pumping of uh, water out of Jenny Springs. Uh, the judge ruled that they did not constitute the public interest, but the private company had the public interest. So this amendment would declare that the public's interest is clean and healthy water. And we're trying to get uh, uh, 900,000 petitions signed and sent to the state. And if you go to FloridaRightToCleanWater.org, you can find all the information about that. All right. Thanks so much, Lenny. FloridaRightToCleanWater.org is where that information is. I appreciate you calling in. Thanks so much. Thank you. And our, I want to remind people that our guest is Reagan Whitlock, a staff attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. And we've been talking so far about a possible leak of water at a Polk County phosphogypsum stack that's owned by the giant fertilizer company Mosaic. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. And I want to switch gears a little bit from talking about phosphate and phosphate waste. Of course, uh, people can still ask their questions by email or, or uh, by phone if you're listening live here on October 31st. But let's talk now about manatees. This month, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced that, they, that it might be warranted to reclassify the West Indian manatee from threatened to endangered. What are your thoughts about that, Reagan? This is a, a wonderful step forward for protections of the manatees, a, spe- a keystone species in the state of Florida uh, that is considered iconic and has been struggling mightily over the last few years. So a, a bit of history on the protections for the Florida manatee. It was one of the first species to be listed as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. And in 2017, the Fish and Wildlife Service prematurely downlisted the species without considering the possibility of an unusual mortality event. You know, we told the service at the time that seagrass losses, especially those in the Indian River Lagoon, where over the course of a decade, we lost more than 90% of total seagrass coverage, could spark an unusual mortality event that killed the lives of many manatees. That was not considered, and the manatee was prematurely downlisted to threatened in 2017. And unfortunately, we were correct. Exactly what we feared would happen did. And over the course of 2021 to 2022, we lost more than 2,000 Florida manatees. That represents more than 20% of the entire population. And more than half of those deaths came in the Indian River Lagoon, where this species was literally starving to death because of the lack of seagrass forage and coverage. 
you know, we at the Center for Biological Diversity, along with partners, Miami Waterkeeper, Save the Manatee Club, uh, Frank Gonzalez Garcia, an engineer in Puerto Rico, and the Harvard Animal Law and Policy Clinic, submitted a petition to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which was an aggregation of all of the best science available and asked them to uplift the manatee back to endangered once again so that we can reprioritize its recovery, that we can get more appropriations from the legislature, and that we can get more full-time employees dedicated to this effort. What do we and, know? Sorry? I was going to ask, what do we know about the scale of the dieback of manatees over the last, say, two or three years? So it has been unprecedented by every uh, every sense of the of the word and the imagination. You know, we lost more than two thousand in twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two combined. And while twenty twenty three has been better in terms of manatee deaths, we are still on track to lose five hundred of these manatees. And it's estimated before the die off that we only had eight thousand eight hundred left in the wild, which is likely a gross overestimation of the species viability to begin with. You know, luckily, the service did make an initial finding on our petition that it may be warranted to uplist the manatee to endangered once again, and they have to make a final decision on that petition this winter. So it's our hope that the service recognizes its mistake in 2017 and once again prioritizes the manatee and its recovery. Speaking about what you were, what you called the mistake in 2017, what was that all about? I mean, I, I think that that uh, there's been such a as a longtime Florida resident, manatees are loved by everyone in Florida. And uh, no one, I, I don't think anyone thought that they were on their way to full recovery three or four years ago. So why in the world were they taken off the endangered status? Well, unfortunately, the manatee was likely a, uh, a casualty of what was known as the wildly important goal by the Fish and Wildlife Service. During the Trump administration, the Southeastern officials for the Fish and Wildlife Service created a, a program known as the Wildly Important Goal, which was to downlist, delist, or otherwise prevent 30 species every year from being on the endangered species list. And you know, luckily, public interest attorneys, both at the center and uh, region-wide, have overturned many of these decisions because they were not based on the best available science. But this was a terrible decision by our Fish and Wildlife Service, and we hope that they recognize that was an awful directive and that there are better ways to treat our endangered species. Our guest is Reagan Whitlock, a staff attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. Right now we're talking about manatees and you're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. We were earlier talking about the, um, the nutrient pollution perhaps going into the waterways from, from gyp stacks and so on. So what's the connection here between the manatee deaths and water quality? Absolutely. And that, that raises a great point. We discussed Piney Point releasing 215 million gallons of fossil gypsum and processed wastewater into Tampa Bay. Over the course of that 10-day release, Tampa Bay saw more nitrogen inundation, nutrient pollution, into the bay than it receives from all other sources over the course of a given year. And that red tide did kill many manatees. On the east coast of Florida, we have a very similar issue with nutrient pollution, largely spurned by agricultural runoff um, and poor wastewater infrastructure. Now, the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus that are entered into the Indian River Lagoon have created similar algal blooms, blue-green algae on the east coast of Florida compared to red tide on the west coast of Florida. And that nutrient pollution has suffocated the seagrasses and led to a precipitous drop in seagrass coverage, which has then 
led to this massive die-off in Florida manatees. So what can you say about how water quality impacts other things like fisheries, tourism, and health of of, uh, people? Certainly. So at the Center for Biological Diversity, we are dedicated to the preservation of species on the brink of extinction. And that uh, customarily refers to water quality and the quality of their habitat. But it's not just endangered species that are threatened by poor water quality in the state. You know, we saw in Tampa Bay during that red tide, the entire tourism industry shut down. You know, we had beaches full of dead marine life. The smell was untenable. You know, hotels didn't have the same number of, of patrons. The, the concerts, you know, couldn't carry on at many of these hotels and other areas. Charter captains, which make their life off the fishing, you know, in our, our bays and waterways. Everyone struggles when our water quality is not where it should be. In the state of Florida, should be heralded as an incredible spot of biodiversity, an incredible marine ecosystem. However, we are also the site of some of the largest threats. We're we're talking about the uh, uplisting, perhaps uplisting the manatee from threatened to endangered. And of course, that's under something called the Endangered Species Act, which is turning 50, 50 years old this year. Talk about the legacy and importance of the Endangered Species Act. Absolutely. For a for an optimistic, positive turn here, the Endangered Species Act turning 50 years old is a, a wonderful milestone in one of the strongest pieces of environmental legislation that we have. The Endangered Species Act is credited with saving 99% of all species that are currently listed, and it's prevented more than 290 extinctions during its lifespan. The Endangered Species Act, in many ways, prioritizes the longevity and recovery of endangered species above all else. And that includes financial considerations. This incredibly strong act has saved species across the country, across the nation, and specifically in the state of Florida where climate change and sea level rise are causing major lapses in recovery. This is an incredible piece of legislation, an incredible tool, and something that should be heralded as one of the greatest achievements that our Congress has had. Our guest is Reagan Whitlock, a staff attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're broadcasting from WMNF in Tampa. And if you're listening live on October 31st, I'd like to hear what you have to say as well. You can email us at dj at wmnf.org. You can text 813-433-0885. And if you'd like to, in the last uh, eight minutes or so of the show, if you kind of hurry, you can get on the phone with us as well, 813-239-9663. Let's talk about an, another area of Florida that's been getting some attention, maybe not so much here in, in the uh, West Central Florida area, but in, in Miami, this is a really big story. Tell us about the Miami Pine Rocklands, what it is and what how it's being potentially threatened. Sure. The Pine Rockland is a globally imperiled habitat. It is uh, a, a wonderful area that boasts uh, an incredible amount of biodiversity. And in Miami, an incredibly urbanized setting, there are still strongholds of this Pine Rockland habitat. And it, it hosts the Florida bonded bat, the Miami tiger beetle, and a, a number of other threatened and endangered species. And this is a great example of the Endangered Species Act at work. You know, the Endangered Species Act protects and preserves animals and habitat, but only when it's used correctly by our agencies. There's a threat to the Miami Pine Rocklands known as the Miami Wilds Water Park. 
This is a, a theme park and water park development slated directly next to Zoo Miami. This overlaps with or is an adjacent to several uh, areas of designated critical habitat for endangered species, including the tiger beetle and the Florida bonneted bat. And critical habitat under the Endangered Species Act is essentially the areas that are desperately needed for animals to recover. You know, primarily with the, the manatee we mentioned earlier, a species cannot survive unless its home is protected, of course. And once critical habitat has been designated, federal agencies cannot take any action without consulting with the Fish and Wildlife Service in order to ensure that critical habitat will not be adversely modified. Unfortunately, in this scenario, the National Park Service released land use restrictions on this area to pave the way for development without consulting to see if critical habitat would be adversely modified. And we had to take the National Park Service to court and that litigation is still proceeding. But the service has admitted in open court that they failed to consult over impacts to this critical habitat. And we're hopeful that that decision will be vacated. But it's a great case study as to the Endangered Species Act. It works, but it only works when our agencies take it under consideration and follow the procedures set forth to protect our fragile species and fragile habitat. A cynic might say at this point, um, you know, I understand what a water park is and I understand how I can get benefit or happiness from that. But why in the world would I want to care about a Miami tiger beetle or Florida bonneted bat? Sure. You know, at the Center for Biological Diversity, we believe that all species have intrinsic value. You know, that means more than just how humans can manipulate the species. It means that they have a right to exist because they were here before us and we hope that they'll be here after us. You know, we want our children to inherit a world where the wild is still alive. I think many folks listening have had impactful moving experiences with the natural world. And I hope that you consider that as you move forward, that the natural world and humans are, are meant to live synergistically and connected. And we cannot truly appreciate what the loss of an entire species will mean. Let's uh, take a couple of quick phone calls. We have only a few more minutes, but let's let's hear from Kim in Brandon. Hi, Kim. You'd like to talk about fertilizer again? Yes. Thank you for taking my call. I'll be brief. Back in the 60s and 70s, if you wanted to fertilize your lawn, it was nonprofit driven. You did it yourself with a spreader. Now we have at least a dozen companies spraying who knows what, um, the, the liquid fertilizer. And when you multiply hundreds of thousands of homes and we're spraying it on St. Augustine, which is not even a native uh, grass, and no one talks about it. I'd like to hear another show, and because it, you know it affects people's jobs and money, and how their lawn looks. But we're destroying this whole area, and no one talks about the liquid fertilizer trucks that come in there almost every month. And you know, a customer thinks thinks there's something wrong with their lawn, so they call them up. They come out and spray. They don't. We don't know what they're spraying or how often. And it's all unnecessary. That was my comment. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Kim. I appreciate that. And uh, Reagan, do you want to comment on that before we move on to Richard? Sure. I, I think globally, it makes sense to address the use of fertilizer and pesticide use across the nation, but specifically in the state of Florida. 
And along with what a, a previous caller stated, there are renewable methods of agriculture that can provide plants with the substance they need, including phosphorus, that does not include the extraction of rare earth minerals like phosphate ore from our earth in the unfettered application of fertilizer in a way that will ultimately reach our bays and waterways. Whether it's the west coast of Florida or the east coast, we are consistently seeing nutrient pollution, which is causing ecological collapse. And I want to ask you about this. It's an animal that I, I love animals. I had not heard of this animal, I don't think, until about a week or two ago when it blew up the internet. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. Javelinas in in uh, Arizona were tearing up uh, golf courses and golf course owners were upset. And then the internet struck back and, and uh, struck a blow for the javelinas. What can you tell us about those desert creatures? Sure, sure. And, and while this is outside of my expertise, it is interesting to note, you know, these javelinas are very similar to wild boar that you would see in, in southeast Florida and uh, in, in Georgia. You know, and yes, they have been rooting around golf courses, you know, just like wild hogs would in our, our area. A, a primary thing they do is root around. And I, I can appreciate that when that affects uh you know, someone's financial bottom line, it becomes a problem. But it's been it's been great to see folks, uh, whether it's on Twitter or generally online, supporting the Javelinas here. For so long, we have experienced whenever there have been negative or perceived to be negative human and wildlife interact interactions, we automatically aside on the uh, the financial aspect. But this is simply an animal doing what an animal does and, and rooting around. Uh, and so I, I love to see support for our our, our species uh, and, you know, animals just doing what it is that they're supposed to do. Yeah, I'm going to say I'm on Team Javelina. And there were also people commenting about how um, they're native to the desert, but golf courses aren't and golf courses harm the desert quite a lot as well. So uh, I'm giving up my my allegiances there. But I want to thank you very much for joining us on Tuesday Cafe today, Reagan. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. Thanks so much. And sorry, I didn't get to Richard's phone call on the telephone, but uh, we're out of time. Reagan Whitlock is a staff attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. And if you missed any of this interview, you can watch it on our website, WMNF.org, beginning this afternoon. And I want to thank our phone screener, John Dunn, who did an excellent job today. You've been listening to Tuesday Cafe with Sean Canan. I'm News and Public Affairs Director at WMNF in Tampa. Next week, we have a special show. We're going to be joined, as I said earlier, by NPR's Aya Batraoui. She used to volunteer in the WMNF newsroom. We'll talk about what she and her team have seen in Israel and Gaza over the last few weeks. And during this time slot tomorrow, Shelley Reback will host Midpoint. Her guests will talk about the state of public schools in Florida. Coming up next is Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Scherberger. And I want to thank everyone who supported Tuesday Cafe during our recent fund drive. If you like the information that you get on this show and on this channel, please help us make our goal with your donation at WMNF.org. This has been Tuesday Cafe coming to you live on October 31st, 2023 from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Also broadcasting to St. Petersburg, Clearwater, Sarasota, Lakeland and beyond. Thanks so much for supporting Community Radio. 